Welcome to this podcast from Jams. In this episode, we're going to dive into the intersection of ADR and bankruptcy disputes. Our guests are two retired bankruptcy judges and Jams neutrals with decades of experience. Judge Joan Feeney, who is joining us from Boston, spent almost 27 years on the bench in the District of Massachusetts and 23 years as a member of the U.S. Bankruptcy Appellate Panel for the First Circuit. And Judge Philip Shefferly, who is joining us from Detroit, spent 18 years on the bench in the Eastern District of Michigan, including over a decade as Chief Judge. So thank you both for joining us. Judge Shefferly, I'll start with you. The pandemic-inspired tsunami of bankruptcy filings that some had predicted didn't quite materialize, but there is still plenty of activity. What kinds of cases are you seeing? Well, recently, I've seen a number of adversary proceedings, and the adversary proceedings that, that have come to me are frequently involve claims for avoidance of fraudulent transfers uh, in, in larger Chapter 11s that sometimes convert to Chapter 7s. Also, I've seen adversary proceedings that are actions against directors and officers for failed businesses, sometimes in Chapter 11, and it's post-confirmation of a plan, or sometimes in Chapter 7. Uh, but again, adversary proceedings uh, seeking recovery for the estate, in these cases, for breach of duty of care and duty of loyalty by the directors and officers that managed the company prior to going into the Chapter 11. I've also seen some other adversary proceedings too, claims resolution disputes, non-dischargeability actions, but but most recently it's been the fraudulent conveyances and the directors and officers claims. Okay. And Judge Feeney, what what are you seeing in, in your neck of the woods? Very much the same in both business and individual cases. I'm seeing primarily adversary proceedings, lawsuits within the main bankruptcy case. Many are estate representatives' actions, so a Chapter 7 trustee or a Chapter 11, a debtor in possession or creditors committee or plan trustees, complaint to avoid and recover fraudulent transfers, preferential transfers, and other voidable transfers. An example would be a a trustee's action to avoid a wrongful foreclosure by a secured creditor due to a defect in a mortgage or a commercially unreasonable sale. Or uh, another example would be an action to recover fictitious profits from investors which they received in a Ponzi scheme. I'm also seeing a lot of adversary proceedings in individual cases. Section 523 actions brought by a creditor to accept particular debts from the debtor's discharge for fraud or willful and malicious injury. And finally, in individual cases, I've also mediated several Chapter 7 trustees' objections to a debtor's claims of exemptions that would be property that they could keep after bankruptcy. Both of you didn't mention Chapter 11 matters. Um, I'm curious, Judge Shefferly, why do you think that is? Why are you seeing more adversary proceedings than Chapter 11 matters, do you think? You know, that's a very good question. I I guess I have uh, a twofold reaction. Uh, One is we don't have a lot of Chapter 11s in the Eastern District of Michigan right now. And I suspect there's going to be more Chapter 11s in the future. But there's been such uncertainty with with some of the the moratoriums that have been in in place by by federal and state governments on on evictions and on foreclosures and things of that nature, that there's almost a sense of, of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, and certain types of Chapter 11 cases, like single asset cases, for example, where you might, or you might find later on down the road, business interruption types of, of cases. So we don't have a lot of those Chapter 11s right now, but I sense that we're going to have some of them or more of them soon. The second part of the answer is, I think that the, the culture of bankruptcy, which really favors compromise and settlement, I think more and more over the last several years has, has invited the use of ADR 
particularly the use of mediation, as a way to resolve adversary proceedings. Now, ADR and mediation are used for all kinds of lawsuits in state and federal courts, but I think the environment of the bankruptcy court and the environment of the bankruptcy community, which is one that, that places great emphasis on compromise and settlement, I think has, has really encouraged uh, the use and has ramped up the frequency of these mediations in adversary proceedings. So that's part of the answer, I think, is that is a more favorable environment for those. And that, that seems to be what's happening right now in the bankruptcy world. Let's shift now to just really the ADR process. Generally, why and when do parties come to you? Well, I'll discuss the when first. Usually, parties will begin to think about mediation when a trial date has been set, and they realize how much work they need to do before the trial is going to happen. Or some other court deadline will prompt the parties to seek assistance from a mediator. Recently, however, I I mediated a case where where I was hired even before the lawsuits had been filed. Mm -hmm. It was a Chapter 11 case where the post-confirmation Chapter 11 trustee asserted claims against directors and officers for breaches of fiduciary duty. And he also asserted uh, objections to several secured creditors' claims. And we mediated them all in one day. So each case is different and and it really depends. But my experience has been if there's some type of court deadline, then the parties will think about mediation instead of spending the time and fees to prepare for a trial. I think Judge Feeney makes a good point is that many times the parties raise the topic of mediation uh, when they're steering at a court deadline or a court hearing coming up. But I think in, in recent years, many of the bankruptcy judges have become more proactive in suggesting mediation at different points in time, maybe even at the initial conference in the adversary proceeding, so that even if a case isn't ready for mediation then, uh, the parties are thinking about it then and not just waiting and suggesting mediation in a reactive way as they get closer to a trial date. So who pays for your services, Judge Feeney, and who, who is it that chooses you? Well, counsel to the dispute, whether it's a multi-party dispute or a two-party dispute, choose the mediator generally. They will often obtain a recommendation from a colleague or sometimes the bankruptcy judge at one of these scheduling conferences might suggest a mediator or several mediators. Some courts have lists of approved mediators that that counsel can go to, to to pick a mediator. And sometimes counsel will simply research mediators and pick one of us from our JAMS uh, website. Payment is usually prorated among the parties according to how many parties there are typically. So in a two-party dispute, each party would would pay half. There is an important point I'd like to emphasize about employment of a mediator. If an estate representative, that is a trustee, or a Chapter 11 debtor, or a Chapter 11 creditors committee, or a Chapter 13 debtor and an individual reorganization is a party to the mediation, then an application to employ the mediator must be filed. And the mediator must file an an affidavit of disinterestedness and no adverse interest and disclose any connections with any of the parties or counsel. So commencing work on the mediation must await for that court order. And that court order of employment does not end 
court involvement. After the mediation is finished, the mediator must file an application for compensation like any professional in a bankruptcy case with an itemization of the time spent and services rendered and await bankruptcy court approval before the estate representative can pay jams for the mediation. Judge Shefford Lee, can you talk about what you think parties should look for in a mediator? Unlike lawsuits in state or federal court, adversary proceedings in particular, but any contested matter in a a bankruptcy uh, proceeding, is going to require some bankruptcy knowledge. So while there may be mediators who are are, uh, familiar with various types of dispute under all kinds of different areas of law, it is important if there's a, a mediation in a bankruptcy matter, whether it be an adversary proceeding or a contested matter, to have a mediator with with understanding of the bankruptcy process. For example, Judge Feeney just explained that in a bankruptcy case where there's a representative of the estate, such as a debtor or a trustee, that is party to the dispute, such that the compensation for the mediator is going to be paid out of the bankruptcy estate, then that person has to be appointed and employed uh, pursuant to order of, of the bankruptcy court. So I guess that's a good illustration of the need to have an understanding of the bankruptcy process, quite apart from the, the specific disputing question in the adversary proceeding uh, or in the contested matter. I think an, an understanding of how that process works uh, is very important, particularly because there are many parties in a bankruptcy case that may not be party at all to the specific dispute in the adversary proceeding or the specific dispute in the contested matter. Yet, if there's a resolution of that matter in the mediation, that may be brought on for hearing in the bankruptcy case with notice to all of these other parties. So I think it is very important that the mediator who's selected in a bankruptcy matter have bankruptcy knowledge of the process of bankruptcy and how settlements are approved. Judge Feeney, can you talk a little bit about your process for mediating bankruptcy disputes for you? What is the sequence of events? Certainly. If there is an estate involved, after retention and court approval, as is necessary, or if no court approval is, is necessary, I will read the pleadings on, on the docket, the public record in the case or adversary proceeding to understand the background facts and the legal theories being advanced. A- after I've familiarized myself with, with the basic facts and, and legal theories, I have calls individually with counsel to to every party to fill in any gaps in information that I can't glean from the docket submissions. Thereafter, I ask all counsel to submit to me a confidential mediation memorandum of no more than 15 pages with certain categories of, of information. Most importantly, the background facts, the legal theories, and a history of of their settlement negotiations. It's important to me to understand why counsel hasn't been able to settle the dispute on their own. And I want to understand how far they are apart and, and what their goals are for the mediation. I also will look at any documents they want to send me, and they're welcome to upload those onto the JAMS portal confidentially. And thereafter, when when I understand the party's goals for the mediation and all of the facts and the legal theories and, and arguments, I will then do my own evaluation of the strengths and weaknesses of the case and, and defenses. 
What, what's interesting to me that I didn't realize before I started mediating is that a mediation starts the moment that the mediator is, is engaged. And the mediation is not just the six or eight hour session on the assigned date of, of the mediation. It, it really starts with the mediator's preparation. And counsel to the parties should start preparing for the mediation early on as well to make the, the session itself more efficient. And Judge Sheffield, do you want to talk a little bit about your preparation as well? Sure. I have uh, many similarities with, with Judge Feeney's comments. I think that the pre-session phone calls are very important. I do have a joint pre-session phone call, and then I decide whether I need to have separate pre-session phone calls as well, because there is a lot of legwork and investigatory work that can be accomplished there to save time on the actual mediation session day and to give context to the dispute. So my, my written submissions are a little bit different, but very similar to Judge Feeney's. Uh, like Judge Feeney, I like to go on the, the file, on the public record, uh, which uh, is accessible to us in, in bankruptcy cases and federal court cases. I like to eyeball the file myself and, and get a feel for what the, the history of the case is uh, to give some context to, to how this dispute came before the court or ultimately before me. But then in my uh, initial joint pre-session phone call, uh, I explain what my requirements are ordinarily for written submissions. And I, I'd like to get the buy-in from the counsel on it. If they have a different idea, I'm open to different ideas. But I explain that generally speaking, I require three things in writing. One is a joint exhibit book that the two sides get together uh, and prepare. And they just identify in that book uh, who selected each exhibit for inclusion. And I encourage them to put only documents, pleadings, and other papers in that book that are really relevant to the dispute that I have to mediate. So that's the first thing. Give me a joint exhibit book, and I ask for that one week in advance of the, the actual mediation session itself. In addition, I ask for a mediation summary, similar to what Judge Feeney um, described here, and I put a page limit on it, too, because I'm not intending to burden the parties with, with exceptionally long briefs that, that, frankly, I don't need and that, that will uh, duplicate much of the work they've done in the litigation. So I do re uh, require a mediation summary. I put a page limit on it, but in the mediation summary, I require... Uh, when they send it to me, they serve it on the other parties as well. So everybody knows both the documents that I'm going to be looking at, the universe of documents in the joint exhibit book, and copies of mediation summaries served by each party. Again, those are required one week before the session. The third item I require is a little different. And this is a confidential mediation statement that's sent to my personal email, not copied to anybody else, for my eyes only, and the contents of it is not to be revealed by me through the course of the mediation to any other party. In this last document, I put a pretty tight page limit on this, usually five pages. What I really want is the brutal honesty of the parties in terms of the history of the settlement discussions to date, where things stand right now in settlement, and a down and dirty assessment of, of the other parties' settlement goals and objectives and where this case can realistically settle at. So this is kind of a bottom line type of a document. It's, it's not intended to set forth legal arguments, and it's not intended to set forth the facts of the case. I really want to know the history of the settlement discussions, and I want to know it in a confidential way. And I use this as I, as I see fit, but I certainly do not disclose it. So I actually require three different things. In that last document, I require only three days before the mediation session itself. And the reason I de delay that is because I want the parties to see the joint exhibits that I'm going to look at, and I want the parties to see 
the mediation summaries of each party uh, so they know what what is being told to the mediator and I, I asked for this last one three days before so my preparation is very similar to, to judge feeney's i want to understand the legal arguments i want to understand the the universe of documents and i want to understand the history of of the settlement discussions it's just a little different in terms of how we acquire the facts and the, the papers to be submitted but but very similar in nature and what about common misconceptions what, what are the biggest common misconceptions about mediating bankruptcy disputes that you come across? That's a really good question. One of the most common misconceptions that I come across is the party's perception that that the mediator's role is to just shuttle back and forth with with offers, which I think is is a a minimalist view of of what a mediator can or should be doing. Now, the, the mediation process is a voluntary process, but it's more than just shuttling offers back and forth to two sides who haven't previously discussed possible ways of settlement. It, it requires uh, some education for them of the, the possible outcomes in bankruptcy, the possible costs would be incurred, the possible delay that would be experienced, and an, an evaluation, a realistic uh, evaluation of the, the merits of their case. How, how much the mediator does in terms of that evaluative component depends on the particular parties and lawyers and how well-informed and how well-prepared they are. But I, I do find that a common misconception is is what they think the mediator is there to do. And and I think sometimes um, they learn that the mediator's role is much more evaluative and educational than just being a, a messenger delivering offers back and forth. I agree with Judge Shefferly on that point. And there's an interesting corollary to his observation. Another misconception is that the mediator will decide who is right and wrong. Mm. Um, and who's going to win and who's going to going to lose. And although mediators aren't necessarily message carriers and they do evaluation of strengths and, and weaknesses, a mediator should not hear from the parties and, and decide who is going to prevail and who is going to be unsuccessful in, in the lawsuit. There are also a couple of other mis- misconceptions. One is that Mediations take a long time. Most of the mediations that I do in bankruptcy disputes take at the most one day, one one eight-hour day. And I've been finding during COVID when we've done our mediations by Zoom that the mediations are taking about two-thirds of that amount of time. And finally, I, I think there's a, a misconception of, of clients, not necessarily lawyers, that the statements made by parties in the mediation are, are not confidential. They are confidential. And, and we spend a great deal of time during the joint opening session explaining to the, the parties in, in particular that what is said during the mediation is, is confidential, cannot be admitted into evidence. And I give the the parties and counsel an, an additional opportunity. And I, I, I tell them that if there is anything that they do not want me to convey to the other side during my caucuses with them, to, to please let me know and I will maintain confidentiality. Judge Shefferly, let's talk a little bit about some of the legal nitty gritty of mediating bankruptcy disputes. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of settlements that need to be approved by a bankruptcy judge and the standards that settlements have to meet to receive that approval? Sure. And that is one thing that's that's unique to the bankruptcy world from other types of judicial disputes is that once a settlement is achieved between the parties, that's not necessarily final. Some matters, not all matters, have to come back to the bankruptcy court. 
if the nature of the dispute is a claim by a representative of the bankruptcy estate, so say a Chapter 7 trustee or a debtor in possession in a Chapter 11 case, if, if they're the party who is prosecuting a claim against a third-party defendant, such as to recover a fraudulent conveyance of property or to sue on um, a claim of breach of duty of care or duty of loyalty against a former director or officer, or to recover a preferential transfer that was taken out, those are assets of the bankruptcy estate. So if the representative of the bankruptcy estate, the trustee or the debtor, is going to compromise in any way the value of that asset and propose a settlement of the litigation to recover that asset, that representative of the estate must go back to the bankruptcy court and get bankruptcy court approval. And typically that requires a showing of certain elements it's, it, that the, the bankruptcy court will look at to determine ultimately, is this a fair and reasonable settlement? Not whether it's a perfect settlement, but is the compromise of this asset, which belongs to the bankruptcy estate, and for which this person is a fiduciary. Is this a fair and reasonable settlement that that gives value to the estate in light of the complexity of the litigation, the likelihood of success of the litigation, the cost that would be incurred going forward? And is this a a settlement that's perceived by the creditors of the estate to be one that that represents a fair and reasonable uh, return on this particular asset? So typically speaking, it's the, the, the recovery of assets for the benefit of the bankruptcy estate, that if those are the subject of the, the, the dispute, those are the types of matters that the, the representative of the estate has to come back to the bankruptcy court and seek bankruptcy court approval on. Judge Feeney, in actions against directors and officers, insurers typically have an important role to play. How do you get them involved? Well, fortunately, in the DNO litigation that I've me- I've uh, mediated, the insurer is is already involved. The insurer is peering under a reservation of rights in the policy, and they are representing one or more of the directors and, and officers. And sometimes, if a if a conflict of interest is 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 present, because several directors and officers are our defendants in DNO adversary, the insurer will obtain separate counsel for the directors and officers. If there isn't an insurance company representing one or more of the defendants, and it doesn't appear that there is counsel for an insurance company, I, I always ask counsel if there is available insurance. And in addition, to counsel for a director or officer participating in the mediation, I always ask that the insurance adjuster participate in the case. The insurance adjuster, as opposed to the client or the attorney who's appearing in the DNO adversary proceeding, is the person with settlement authority. And it's essential for that person to be in the room. Well, both of you know that ADR is now firmly part of the bankruptcy landscape. How would you characterize its evolution over, say, the last decade? And and where do you see it heading? Judge Shefferly? Well, I think it's become much more prevalent over the last decade. And I think one uh, indicator of that is that many of the bankruptcy courts around the country have now adopted local rules uh, providing for some form of mediation or ADR. In the court where I sat, we had a, a local rule that governed mediations, but frankly, it was for mediations in primarily consumer cases or for pro bono cases where it was uh, recommended that a mediator be appointed and a fee was set at a very nominal amount. That rule did not uh, really address 
mediations in chapter 11s or in complicated adversary proceedings. And so the mediation of those matters was left primarily to the, the parties to, to decide to mediate, to select somebody, say, off of, off of GM's roster, or for the bankruptcy judge to, to recommend it. Hey, this is a good case for mediation. And at least in, in my practice, uh, as I indicated before, I did like to confer with the lawyers about it because sometimes there were complicated disputes that, that did require mediation. Now, we didn't have a local rule that provided for mediation of those types of complex matters. But I think that the tendency among the bankruptcy courts is to is to recognize more and more the need to have an ADR process that is approved by us by the court or is consistent with the wishes of, of the bench. So I guess to sum up my in my experience, the mediation has become more and more prevalent in bankruptcy court. And I, I think the trend is going to continue. And as I said before, the bankruptcy system is predicated upon uh, notions of compromise and settlements that will only make sense to to continue to use it there. And, and in many cases, we're dealing with limited resources in the bankruptcy state, which in many cases are used to fund both the, the legal fees for uh, the plaintiff in a dispute and the defendants in the dispute. They're coming out of the same same pot of resources. So I think uh, the trend is going to continue to to use and develop the, the, the different ways to use mediation in, in bankruptcy cases going forward. Judge Feeney, where do you see things heading? I agree wholeheartedly with Judge Shefferly. I think good counsel recognizes that litigation and bankruptcy are not a good fit. There are limited funds, and the more fees spent on litigating, the less the creditors will receive as as a dividend. I think virtual mediations um, are here to stay. During the, the past year and three months with COVID, We've done every mediation by Zoom, and I've found that they take less time, so they cost less, and, and they're quite efficient. Right now, we're talking about doing hybrid mediations, part by Zoom, for those who don't wish to come to a JAMS Resolution Center, and partly in person for those, for those who do, for those who want in person. So in, in, in my cases, I, I still ask, uh, even though the office has, has reopened, whether council wants to do the session by Zoom. I also want to add one other thing. I think there are many more opportunities for mediation of consumer bankruptcy disputes. And I think that consumer bankruptcy lawyers can utilize jams and utilize mediators of jams to resolve some of those disputes. Judge Feeney mentioned objections to exemptions in a consumer case. Mortgage foreclosure disputes in the Chapter 13 case. These are disputes that are going to be more frequently mediated going forward, uh, even though those are consumer cases. And we don't typically think of them the same way we think of the use of mediation in Chapter 11 cases. I do think that mediation in the bankruptcy court is headed to, to a more comprehensive treatment of cases, not just commercial cases, but consumer cases as well. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Judge Shefferly, Judge Feeney, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from JAMS, the world's largest private alternative dispute resolution provider. Our guests have been JAMS Neutrals Judge Joan Feeney and Judge Philip Shefferly. For more information about JAMS, please visit www.jamsadr.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from JAMS.